This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Well, first I'd uh, like to thank Chicago Law School and, uh, and Will Boat for inviting me here, and uh, it's a great honor. Uh, always to talk to uh, to law students, and particularly to talk to them about the Supreme Court. And the reference was made to the time of your graduation, um, and it's certainly preferable to have a law degree if you uh, aspire to be a lawyer or aspire to uh, uh, hold judicial office. But actually, there's no requirement uh, that uh, a judge uh, have a law degree, and one of our greatest justices, uh, Robert Jackson, who was considered by many to be the greatest writer on the court, uh, did not have a law degree. However, I encourage you to stay in school and graduate and uh, proceed in the uh, conventional fashion. My book is called uh, Supremely Partisan, and uh, it is about uh, politics and partisanship in uh, two areas. One, the area of judicial selection on the Supreme Court, and secondly, whether partisanship affects how they decide uh, the cases before them. And when I wrote the book, uh, I became intrigued with the whole development of the Supreme Court jurisprudence, which I learned about in law school and followed throughout my career, but I began to look at it more closely. And uh, particularly, um, it starts with uh, uh, one of the founding fathers whose name is in great currency uh, these days, and that's Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton thought that the judiciary was uh, really uh, the uh, uh, least dangerous branch of government uh, because uh, uh, the judiciary had no army, uh, which was something Hamilton knew a lot about, having served under George Washington. And uh, the judiciary had no money, which Hamilton knew a great deal about, having been our first Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and uh, he and Madison wrote a constitution, however, that uh, creates a Supreme Court. Uh, doesn't say how many justices there to be. Doesn't say how it's to be organized. Uh, and doesn't really say what its powers are. Does the judicial power shall be in one Supreme Court and such? Uh, lower courts as uh, Congress shall ordain and establish. So, um, and having done that, he really left it to uh, uh, further development uh, and further events to chart the course uh, for the court. Interestingly enough, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that uh, the Supreme Court or the judges have a power of judicial review, that they can declare acts of uh, Congress unconstitutional, that they can declare acts of the president unconstitutional. Uh, I suppose it's implicit, since they're called the Supreme Court, that they could reverse judgments of the lower courts, but it doesn't even say that. Um, and uh, Hamilton uh, felt very strongly that there ought to be judicial review. It appears in the Federalist Papers, and Madison did as well. Why didn't they say it? They did, probably didn't say it because Jefferson uh, thought that gave too much power to the judges, and they couldn't get the thing through uh, unless they were silent on it. But Hamilton had a great pal, uh, and he was our fourth chief justice, 
and uh, his name was uh, uh, John Marshall, and Hamilton did live long enough. He was killed in a duel, as we all know, in 1804, but in 1803, his pal John Marshall decided a case called Marbury against Madison, which you know about, uh, where they uh, sent us to the judicial department to say what the law is. So it was to be really the work of lawyers, not politicians. Um, if you wanted political judgments or political decisions, you could have, uh, if it were nine, uh, nine politicians in robes. Uh, if you wanted uh, ethicists, you could have nine ethicists. If you wanted historians, you could have nine historians. But no, they had nine lawyers. And even though there was no requirement that they be lawyers. Now, what is a lawyer supposed to do? A lawyer's work is to read the text of the statute or the text of the Constitution. Uh, the lawyer uh, would look at precedent, because this is the way it was done in England, find out how other judges had approached similar problems, and come to a judgment uh, as uh, would resolve the problem. So my book doesn't really deal that much with the doctrinal difference between what I call uh, originalism and evolutionism, uh, where uh, uh, the living constitution versus the dead constitution, I deal more with outcomes. And uh, in talking about outcomes, we look to see that we're in recent years, probably starting in 1986 or perhaps even before, uh, that we have a lot of five to four decisions and six to three decisions. And where there are five to four decisions, we have five um, conservative justices, in many cases, uh, deciding the case, and four liberal justices who are dissenting in the case now, who are the, the conservative justices. It just so happens they're all justices appointed by Republican presidents. And who are the liberal justices? And these are just easy uh, uh, terms that the media use in describing them, but the four liberal justices are invariably uh, justices who have been appointed by Democratic presidents. doesn't always work that way. And in fact, uh, in the, uh, the great liberal era in the court was the court uh, where the Chief Justice was Earl Warren, a prosecutor from California who was a Republican, had run for Vice President of the United States on the Republican ticket. Um, Eisenhower appointed him, became not only uh, one of our most liberal justices, but became the chief justice who was responsible for uh, the unanimous decision in Brown v. Board of Education, landmark decisions, decisions establishing right of the indigent to counsel, right to be warned uh, by criminal defendants, and a host of new rights that he and his colleague, William Brennan, uh, uh, who was kind of his intellectual muse, so just his story was John Marshall's intellectual muse, uh, William Brennan uh, uh, saw new rights uh, that were sewn in the fabric of the Constitution, even though they weren't uh, expressly set forth there. Um, so uh, Eisenhower said his two greatest mistakes in office were Earl Warren and William Brennan. Uh, so presidents have often been surprised, they might even argue misled and deceived as to how justices uh, are going to decide cases. What is interesting is that for lawyers like me and lawyers uh, like Professor Bowden and particularly 
constitutional scholars like President Vogt, the uh, interesting thing is how uh, the judge gets to the decision, the reasoning, the doctrine that drives a judge toward the decision. To the media, to the body politic, um, to uh, the man in the street, it's all the outcome. It's all the judgment. Uh, does the court uh, create a right of gay marriage? Um, is, does the court uh, create a, an abortion right? Um, does the court uh, strike down a, a statute of Congress establishing certain procedures for vindicating voting rights in the South? Um, and of less interest to uh, uh, the, uh, the body politic is how the judge got there. So then uh, we see now, um, and what happened to me was, so was now I'd written this very interesting book, uh, and uh, last February the book was submitted to the publisher, and uh, my uh, iPhone buzzed, and I looked at the screen, it said Justice Scalia had died. And I realized that I couldn't let the book go in the form that it was in, that I had to make certain adjustments. And um, so I had a contract with the publisher that said I couldn't make any changes. But I called the publisher and I said, look, uh, this is uh, uh, a supervening event, uh, not contemplated by the contract. I mean, uh, all, all of the arguments I'd learned to uh, make in uh, your neighboring Michigan. And, uh, I, um, and the publisher said, yes, I think uh, you better make some changes. So I, I, I changed it. Uh, and then um, while, uh, I, after I submitted those changes, Every time I put, uh, had a sentence that started out with Scalia thinks, I had to change it to Scalia thought. Uh, but uh, when I uh, had submitted all those changes, the next thing that happened was uh, that uh, President Obama appointed Merrick Garland to the court. Oh, I uh, thought, well, maybe that's something I ought to include. And no sooner did Merrick Garland um, appear in the, uh, in the Rose Garden with the president uh, to be nominated to the court, then uh, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Mr. McConnell, said, uh, no way, Jose, uh, the Senate was going to block his appointment. So I had to deal with that, and it seemed obstructive, it seemed frustrating, um, and insulting, really, to lawyers, because it further intensified and exacerbated what I saw as a politicization of the judiciary. So we have two issues. Uh, that you have to deal with. Really, one, why is the appointment process so politicized? And number two, uh, does the politicization of the judiciary affect uh, the outcomes of cases, uh, on, and particularly those involving hot-button issues uh, such as um, voting rights, abortion, um, I like to say guns, gays, and God, um, which are uh, the issues that uh, uh, seem to divide us um, and divide the court. Now, it shouldn't come as a great surprise that uh, the court is divided and polarized. Um, our people are polarized, we saw it in, this, in the recent election. Uh, our media are polarized. Our uh, think tanks are polarized. And our Congress is polarized. Um, we have very sharp differences of opinion in this country about approaches to things and how they should be done. 
And a lot of these issues land on the doorstep of the Supreme Court. And in many cases, uh, and Professor Bowden might disagree, but in many cases the Constitution doesn't tell us uh, what to do about them. Uh, uh, Scalia thought that the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, in their majestic ambiguity, were like two empty vessels. And then he saw the liberal justices pouring into the vessels anything they wanted to. Uh, the uh, liberals saw that uh, there uh, might be all kinds of rights that aren't expressed in the Constitution, rights of privacy, uh, a right to abortion, uh, an evolving standard of decency that might even make capital punishment unconstitutional. And um, this is really what intensified the, the sharp divide in the court and caused commentators and observers, and, and particularly uh, in a Harvard address made by uh, Justice Souter, uh, that they were seeking uh, bases for their decisions from sources outside the Constitution. So um, I wrote this. Uh, I've um, been talking about the book called Supremely Partisan. I recently came back from London, where I addressed the group of lawyers and judges. And of course, they have no written constitution in England. It's uh, a constitution, but it's, the constitution is basically what Parliament says it is, and it's based on practice and custom. Um, and uh, there really is no text uh, to which uh, you could point for a uh, and there's no power to overrule, no power of judicial review, no power to uh, overrule um, an act of parliament. And what they say is, because they always think they do it better than we do, they say, how can you possibly have an 18th century document that applies to uh, modern technology, to the internet, to GPS, to DNA? and all the things we now know about, which certainly James Madison didn't know anything about. You remember that famous exchange between uh, Scalia and uh, Alito, where uh, Scalia was asking a lawyer some question, it was a video games case, and uh, whether uh, they were protected by the First Amendment. And uh, um, uh, Scalia asked the lawyer some question, and Alito, interjected, what Justice Scalia wants to know is what James Madison would have thought of video games. And Scalia snarled back, uh, and he was such a snarky guy, and he said, uh, no, what Justice Scalia wants to know is what James Madison would have thought of violence. And um, so uh, uh, the, uh, this whole question of, uh, of originalism and what uh, it it, it, uh, Scalia thought it makes it a lot easier because it's grounded in, uh, in law and in uh, the law of, really, in United States law, which is the Constitution. And um, so there's, t uh, and you start with text and you look at uh, the original understanding of the society at the time and you look at precedent. He was perfectly prepared to look at precedent, unless it was abortion, in which case he was prepared to overrule it. And um, you uh, have a much better basis for an answer rather than uh, worrying about the evolving standards of decency. He said, I don't know what the evolving standards of decency are, uh, and I don't want to know, um, so, which would shift from court to court. So that's the basic outline structure of what I do in the book. I also talk about identity politics, 
Um, when Scalia was around, you had six Catholics and three Jews on the court, um, three women, uh, one wise Latina, an African-American who seems to vote with the conservatives every time an issue is presented, particularly dealing with the rights of African-Americans. He seems to find a way to uh, defeat those rights, uh, which when you think he was appointed to replace Thurgood Marshall is kind of a shocking fact. So I call that identity politics. Um, and if had Merrick Garland <coughs> confirmed, you would have had uh, five Catholics and four Jews on the court, and no Protestants. We've had 112 uh, justices of the Supreme Court. 89 have been white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. Uh, they've done so badly for us, um, but uh, they—that uh, has been the ethnic composition. But they're appointed uh, in ways. If you look at it. Uh, it's really uh, extraordinary because uh, presidents have approached these appointments uh, the way uh, a, a Democratic uh, 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 Tammany Hall boss in New York City might approach uh, assembling a ticket. When I was your age, the, the ticket that ran was, in New York was Lefkowitz, Gilhuli, and Fino against uh, Bean, Procaccino, and O'Connor. And they thought that's good because in a multicultural, multiracial society, uh, there has to be a certain amount of power sharing. But why is it necessary in a court? Or do you just look for the, shouldn't you just look for the best justices? Shouldn't you have a meritocracy? Interesting questions. Does a, a Jewish justice approach an issue in a different way from um, a uh, Protestant justice? Uh, justice Ginsburg thinks yes. Um, and uh, Felix Frankfurter thought no. Um, Scalia said, uh, uh, number, one, number one thing that I am is, uh, is that I'm a Catholic. He said, if my uh, um, Catholicism ever clashed, my Roman Catholic faith ever clashed with my constitutional duty, uh, of course, I would have to resign. He said, but I like my job, so I'm not going to resign. I don't uh, see that I'll ever have to. So anyway, that's about the size of it. I've talked much too long, but I would be happy to uh, engage in dialogue with good Professor Bard, who I'm sure disagrees with uh, much of what I've said. <laughs> uh, maybe not all. <clears throat> so we were, we were joking before. I was not sure whether I was going to agree or disagree. So I think I'm going to try to split the difference by disagreeing in both directions at once. Uh, so so I, I like there's sort of two points about partisanship in the court, right? One about the selection process and where they come from, and then the second about how partisan they are when they get there. So breaking them up on the first point, on whether the, the selection of the justices is, is partisan, is too partisan, uh, I'm inclined to think it's actually not partisan enough. I think the real problem in our judicial selection is that we don't have enough partisan disagreement about, about politics. So the, the way you had Eisenhower picking Brennan uh, and Warren and things like that was not so much that, that uh, I don't know, he was magnanimous and just wanted to make sure there was a range of views or that he thought that, that Brennan was the most qualified person for the court. It was just that he didn't care that much. It wasn't that important to the Republican Party what the jurisprudential views of the justices were. And he sort of scored political points by picking people. Uh, and I think it's actually good for the, the president and the Senate and people to care who's on the court. Uh, they have a lot of power. Their judicial philosophies and their approaches matter. And so we probably ought to just take it really seriously rather than doing it uh, sort of randomly or, or uh, in a less thought out way. And so even now, even when we have this sort of sense that the 
judicial selection process is really, really partisan. I think it could be more partisan. I think, for example, we still have this norm that the president gets a substantial amount of the say in who the justice is, but according to the Constitution, it's the president and the Senate both. And there's no reason for the Senate to defer to the, to the pick of the president if they think they can do better, if they think they can hold out and get somebody they'd like better. There's no reason for them not to, to sometimes sort of go first and say, I mean, now we're into lists of justices, I guess. So there's no reason for the Senate not to have put forward for Senator McConnell not to have gone, gone first and said, look, here's a list of seven people we'd confirm if you pick them, uh, Mr. President. Uh, they didn't do that. You know, instead we had this, this whole sort of uh, stalemate for a while. Maybe that's a step in the right direction. But it actually seems to me be better if we have everybody who has the power to pick a justice uh, kind of getting involved, taking it seriously. Maybe sometimes that means we'll compromise. Maybe sometimes it means we won't agree at all. But but it's important. We should we should take it seriously. I think Justice Scalia uh, uh, actually foresaw this. Right. So in one of his many many dissents. In Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, one of the abortion cases, he predicts this is what's going to happen. He says, you know, used to be that people thought being a Supreme Court justice was just being a lawyer. And it was lawyers' work, and we just sort of sat up here parsing, like, old texts and precedents. And so people just pretty much left us alone, assuming that, you know, any expert lawyer could do the job. Uh, but the more we've created, in Justice Scalia's view, all these rights that weren't in the Constitution, purported to pronounce on like the deep meaning of human life and the fundamental values of the American people, you know, the more the American people thought, okay, if that's what they're doing, we should get a voice in it. <laughs> if the, the court is going to do is decide the, the most basic questions of morality and Americanism, then then I guess there should be a vote on it. So people have have sort of gotten in on the act, and in a way, I think Justice Scalia would be would be pleased and amused by how much political uh, fire there was over, over his seat. I think he would say, I told you so. Um, so I guess I think that's actually a good thing, and if anything, we need more of it, not less. Now, obviously, on the other side, once the justices take an oath, get their commission, walk into the Supreme Court building, right? they aren't beholden to anybody anymore. Uh, they have life tenure, pretty much. In theory, they could be impeached, but that's not really a realistic possibility. They need a little bit of money to keep the uh, their salaries protected by the Constitution. They need a little bit of money to hire law clerks, keep the like computers running and things like that. But but basically, they're self-sufficient and, and on their own. And I think they ought to use that maybe more than they do uh, and ought to sort of put aside their past political loyalties and their past sort of lives and just, just concentrate on being whatever they, you know, finding whatever they think is the right the right way to be a, to be a judge or justice. Um, I think a lot of them are doing that. Uh, and part of the problem is just that they, they disagree a ton about what it is they're supposed to be doing. But, but maybe there could, be, there could be more of it. And I do worry about all the 5-4 sort of politicized decisions uh, where people identify the justices as conservative and liberal and think of them even as Republicans and Democrats, even though, you know, uh, I worry about that a lot. <clears throat> and then the question is, what, if anything, can be done about it? Um, especially if, if the selection process is going to be so, so partisan all the time, right? So like all law professors, the first best solution is for everybody to agree on the correct method of constitutional interpretation, which is mine. <laughs> so if we could resolve the dispute by just having everybody adopt sort of like my views about originalism, that would be great. That's the best way to get past partisanship is to have everybody agree with me. Uh, but, you know, if the second best option was to have them all agree with somebody I really disagreed with, like, like Jeff Stone, I wouldn't like that at all, right? <laughs> I would still be holding out for people to, to dissent and disagree. So, so it doesn't seem like we've got a lot to do there other than just argue, argue with one another all the time. One possibility would be, and, and, 
you alluded to this a little bit, would be to have maybe more of a serious and principled conversation about precedent and stare decisis. So, uh, and we saw this actually a lot in the past six months as people thought the fate of the Supreme Court was going to be up in the air and, and had different guesses about which way it was suddenly going to flip. Right? So there were, there were liberal law professors who'd been complaining all the time about how the Roberts Court was running roughshod over various precedents and they weren't respecting precedent enough and you know, we need to have more precedent, who then started writing kind of gleeful posts about as soon as we get a fifth vote, you know, here's a list of all the cases we should overturn. Uh, we should do to them what they did to us and more. <laughs> right? And then you know, suddenly everybody had to re-flip back and like delete all their blog posts and say, like, never mind, like I'm really a favor precedent. Uh, and, and it goes the other way around too, right? The the uh, conservative judges who've been complaining about various precedents getting overruled, and as soon as they get five votes, they overrule they overrule everything. And it seems to me that maybe we should we should try to to you know work out in advance some set of norms about what we what we want to do with precedent. I, I'm open to the view we shouldn't have it at all. Uh, just as Thomas comes the closest to that to that principle. Even he actually respects precedent sometimes, but just say, look, you know, as soon as you get five votes or something, everything goes out the window. I'm not sure I'm not sure we all think that was a good idea if we had to face it under the, the veil of ignorance. Maybe we could agree on some set of principles so that so that we don't suddenly have the massive flip flopping. That could at least kind of confine us into a narrower a narrower zone. Other possibility, and I'm curious to know what, whether you think either of these will work or anything, would be just to get the court out of the most important, the most hot button cases, the, the guns, God, et cetera stuff. And gays. Gays, okay. Uh, would be to say, you know, if you look at the court's docket, right, most of the cases are not 5 4. A lot of the cases are unanimous. A lot of them are 7 2. A lot of them are 6 3. They just tend to be the, the boring ones, right? Uh, is such and such you know, period of time excludable under the Speedy Trial Act? You know, what's the definition of uh, you know automobile franchise under the federal preemption laws and like all that kind of stuff? And that, that they seem to do a pretty kind of ordinary lawyer's job of. It's just the headline grabbing stuff that seems the the worst. So maybe maybe they should just take fewer of those cases uh, and spend more time on the other ones, or maybe Congress should take them away from them. Uh, and strip jurisdiction in a set of the, the most contentious cases and just let that stuff sort of, sort of uh, peter along. Uh, one other possibility uh, I've seen floated, and I'm still on the fence about this, uh, would be nine is not the right number of justices. So again, this is an opportunistic move we saw, and now everybody's flipping around on it, but maybe we should have an even number, like eight or six, the original number. Because then you couldn't have five, four cases anymore, right? As long as the court is roughly evenly divided, you would only be able to get a ruling when there's some partisan crossover. Uh, and you'd never, you know, five, three is a little bit more of a supermajority than five, four, four, two. So maybe we should actually discourage this sense that, like, they have nine justices and they're always supposed to give us an answer and get them to see sometimes there are things they can just, they can just let go. So, may that speak to you? Well, there's no uh, magic, of course, in nine. Uh, the court was six in 1789 that the was organized, even number. Uh, then it went up to seven, uh, and the Congress uh, creates the uh, number of judges. It's nowhere in the Constitution. went up to seven, uh, then it went up to nine, uh, then they inflated it to ten uh, because uh, they didn't want to give... Uh, 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 I thought it was a way of blocking Andrew uh, Johnson. And then uh, they uh, put it back to nine again. And uh, in 1869, it became nine, and it uh, has remained nine to this day. So you have a practice 
uh, of its being nine, and you have a practice of its being an odd number. Um, Alito and Breyer think they can do very well with uh, with eight, uh, and uh, Kagan and Ginsburg say no, nine is good because then you have less of a risk of a deadlock. Uh, if there's a deadlock, of course, uh, the decision of the lower court is undisturbed uh, and has no precedential value. Uh, so it really deals the Supreme Court out of the equation, and uh, uh, that's not so hot. So uh, uh, the uh, fiddling around with the number uh, of justices is really uh, kind of a tendency, because uh, we lawyers basically are a conservative lot, and lawyers will say, you know, don't fool around with the Constitution. Don't try to amend it. You can't amend it anyway. You'll never get uh, two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states. Don't fool around with the number of judges the way Roosevelt tried to do, which was said uh, to impair the uh, independence of the judiciary. Uh, leave it the way it is, and let's have a partisan, supremely partisan court. Uh, and uh, when you look at it, I agree with you uh, uh, completely well, because uh, uh, the supremely partisan court is exactly what the Constitution <coughs> contemplated. I'm not sure that the, uh, the founding fathers ever visualized that we would have a presidential candidate who said, would say, I want to appoint a justice who will automatically overrule Roe v. Wade uh, and will sustain the Second Amendment. Um, sustain the Second Amendment as a truism. The Second Amendment's there. There's nothing a justice can do to declare the Second Amendment unconstitutional. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, but it is, uh, has, has never happened, to my knowledge, in, in the history of this great republic, that the president has said, this is the kind of justice that I will appoint uh, with the thought that he, the president, would get the justice to automatically overrule a case that's been decided, and in fact has been reaffirmed at least twice. Um, uh, so um, how is that going to work? Uh, he'll appoint a justice. We're talking about the title of this talk was The Post-Scalia World. Uh, he will appoint a justice. Uh, if he wanted to appoint a justice, as McConnell said, who was elected by the American people, he'd appoint uh, Merrick Garland. Because after all, uh, Hillary Clinton received the majority of the popular vote. So uh, why wouldn't Merrick Garland be a justice elected by the, the American people? But he's not going to do that. You know he's not going to do that. And uh, he will appoint someone and uh, the nominee will go before the Senate Judiciary Committee in this Byzantine process that we've had uh, since the time of Brandeis in uh, 1916. And can you just see the first question from uh, Senator Schumer uh, of the uh, nominee? He'll say, uh, uh, Judge so-and-so, I assume it will be a judge, may not be, but Judge so-and-so, uh, will you automatically overrule Roe v. Wade? And what will he say? He'll say what Clarence Thomas started the tradition of answering this way. Well, that's an issue that might come before me if I uh, am seated on the bench, so I really can't comment on it. Now, uh, everyone likes to dump on poor Clarence Thomas, but actually uh, the liberal justices who've been nominated, including Sotomayor, asked questions like that and said, um, I can't comment on that because that's an issue that might come before me. Uh, Scalia, Thomas, they don't worry about issues that might come before them because they've spoken extrajudicially um, about uh, those issues and about those cases. So in any event, uh, you have uh, 
what seems to me a highly politicized process and a highly politicized court. So then he'll say, I can't answer the question. And then Senator Schumer will say, well, well tell me this, judge. You met with the president. We must have had some conversation with him. Uh, did you uh, say to the president you were prepared automatically to overrule Roe v. Wade? Or did he suggest to you that you ought to vote automatically to overrule Roe v. Wade? And uh, the answer will probably be, I'm not at liberty to discuss my conversations with the president. Those are privileged conversations. So um, you know very well that his uh, demur, or her demur, uh, about discussing those conversations means that if it were jury trial, there would be an inference. And certainly the American people will draw the inference, and Senator Schumer will draw the inference that this is a judge committed um, to rule a certain way when he or she gets on the bench. And um, that is certainly something that's taken it a step further and beyond anywhere that it has ever gone in the past. In the past, we've had uh, candidates uh, like uh, uh, Souter, David Souter, who was supposed to be the stealth candidate because he was supposed to be uh, against abortion rights. He wound up voting for abortion rights. Um, you have uh, Brennan and Warren, I alluded to. You've also had a number of them. It's interesting that a number of Republican appointees, once in office, once uh, uh, cloaked in judicial independence, have crossed the line and voted with moderates or voted with liberals on many occasions, among them Sandra Day O'Connor, among them Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote, and among them um, uh, you have uh, uh, Potter Stewart, among them Lewis Powell. Um, the other thing that makes the court, you see, uh, polls say that the public uh, lacks confidence in the Supreme Court when it perceives uh, their judgments to be political. Then they become just like legislative judgments. And they say, well, who in hell are these uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, they haven't been elected by anybody, uh, and uh, they're not accountable to anybody. They're independent, and they're making political judgments. In other areas, in these boring cases that they decide, uh, and we see that every day because we believe in a rule of law, uh, a judge will come down with a decision and will say, well, I disagree with that, but of course we have a rule of law, we'll accept it. And most litigants, most of your clients, when you get out of practice, will accept the disposition, even if it's adverse to them, because... Uh, they feel we have a rule of law and you just uh, you can't argue with, uh, uh, with the final judgment. And you'd say it's bad, but uh, you have to accept it. So, uh, but if it's politicized, if it's a political judgment, I like abortion or I don't like abortion, we're not free to accept it. And that is, was the great fear uh, that uh, uh, we had, uh, that John Marshall had about the Supreme Court. Remember, uh, in the uh, Cherokee Indians cases when uh, Andrew Jackson said, well, uh, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him go enforce it. And um, because the Supreme Court has no army and it can't enforce its judgments. And so it depends for its legitimacy and its primacy as the last word on the Constitution and public confidence and acceptance and respect for what it does, even when it's narrowly divided. And I suppose even when it's uh, uh, terribly partisan. Now you look at the gay marriage case. Um, I thought uh, uh, your uh, mentor, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, wrote a brilliant dissent 
very persuasive in what she said. This was a, uh, if you're a supporter of gay rights, uh, it's a great day for you, but a bad day for the Constitution because there's nothing in the Constitution about marriage. There's certainly nothing in the Constitution about gay marriage. If you'd asked uh, Hamilton or uh, Madison or a legislator in uh, the 19th century at the time of the Equal Protection Clause, if uh, they understood that uh, what they were doing was authorizing gay marriage, they would look at you as if you were crazy. And um, Scalia in his dissent, where he sarcastically said, how is it that there's a right lurking in the fabric of the Constitution that was undiscovered by uh, Louis Brandeis, Oliver Wendell Holmes, or Henry Friendly? Uh, but they found it there. And uh, Kennedy found it there. It was a brilliant, eloquent uh, opinion of the court. But uh, as Robert said in his dissent, um, who the hell do we think we are uh, that we can invent a right like this? Uh, and uh, you look at the, the whole history of the Constitution, which never, the Constitution didn't even mention marriage. Um, and uh, marriage was something that was left to the states. And yet they made a decision of this kind. So, as Will points out, uh, the, uh, uh, they're making these decisions when life begins, who should be able to marry, uh, when, you can, uh, uh, when a doctor can uh, be of assistance in ending a life. Uh, I mean, these are uh, vital personal decisions that are being decided for us by uh, unaccounted judges. Uh, but yet that's our system, and it was intended to be a politicized system, so uh, uh, we have to acknowledge that we're stuck with it. So, so I think we should get some questions from yeah. the students, but I, I want to sneak one in first. Though. So uh, the senator's asking the questions and the, and the, the nominee's evading them. Do you think, I mean, I actually, I, I think we should ask them more questions, as, as I hinted, but is that really fair? Like, do the senators even really want to know the answer? Because I assume that if one of Donald Trump's nominees said, oh, no, oh, no, Your Honor, I, I wouldn't, you know, oh, no, Senator, I wouldn't overrule Roe versus Wade, or I wouldn't necessarily overrule Roe versus Wade, I assume nobody would believe them. I assume Chuck Schumer is still going to vote no, saying, like, I'm not reassured by this answer. And similarly, I assume if the Senate really cared about getting answers to its questions, they could adopt a rule or something saying, we won't let a nominee proceed to the floor until they answer all the questions of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's just going to be the rule. Well, but that would almost create a constitutional crisis, wouldn't it, between the, le the legislative branch and the judicial branch as to what the ethics are of answering these questions. But, you know, Clarence Thomas uh, lied through his teeth unquestionably because he was asked about uh, Roe v. Wade, and he said uh, whether he'd ever read it, whether they'd ever discussed it, whether they'd ever debated it with anyone. He said, no, I can't say that I have. He wrote two law review articles on the subject, and, um, which they produced, and they, they passed them anyway. So the whole thing is a, it's kind of a circus, and he co-authored them, but he wrote them, and uh, his name was on them, so he must have at least read the title, and it said, uh, I've co-authored some things I haven't <laughs> Not should not 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 things that say should Roe v. Wade be overruled. I, mean, I better check. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, back. So a concern that I have for a four-four court, if it gets involved in gridlock, and we have cases uh, like Carolyn Products Footnote Four brings up, where you have a political process that just doesn't work. So think about like one person, one vote originally, or for gay marriage specifically, where people in these states are going to have either stigma against them. Pick your choice of argument. If the political process doesn't work, you have people who can't get help from the courts. What is the remedy if you have a 4-4 court? 
I mean, uh, yeah, so the hint was that a 4-4 court means the lower court decision stands, right? So, yes. The United so, States Court of Appeals is the remedy. So in most of the gay marriage cases, that would mean a right to gay marriage in almost every circuit, I guess other than the Sixth Circuit. Uh, so maybe that's weird because there's a lack of uniformity or we don't like that one decision. On the other hand, sometimes that can mean the, the right decision stands. So we need more power to lower court judges, which... The, other, the interesting thing about the gay marriage decision is that uh, the dissent might have been uh, all the more powerful. It was predicated on the fact that you can't find a right to gay marriage in the Constitution. But when you have Scalia in Lawrence v. Texas... Uh, where he dissented in the, uh, in the judgment that uh, 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 homosexual sodomy uh, could be criminalized. Uh, he thought it should be criminalized as it was in Texas, and the majority said, no, it's unconstitutional. And he said, well, uh, you know, this is bad enough, but just wait, they're going to come back with gay marriage. And uh, wait till they come back with gay marriage, as if that was anathema. And then in uh, the course of the oral argument in the gay marriage decision, um, and his views were well known because in, in Princeton he railed against uh, uh, homosexuals and against gays. And uh, he, uh, uh, in the course of the argument, uh, a man uh, rose in the spectators' portion of the uh, of the hall, and he said, uh, and he started to scream and yell. And so the marshals went over to him and tried to subdue him and drag him out of the courtroom. And as they dragged him out of the courtroom, the courtroom was hushed. And the man said at the top of his lungs, you will all roast in hell for this. And Scalia said, I find that rather refreshing. Oh, boy. That was, there was no question about how he felt about this. Uh, uh, so just trying to project what the court might look like over the next uh, few years, uh, the, the, the conversation seemed to differentiate between politicization and partisanship. It seems like politicization might be that there are justices that have views of how the Constitution should be interpreted, who state those views ideally, so that there can be a robust debate about it, and then they're confirmed and they're on the court. And then in that case, at least we have principles that we can hold them to as we look at their decisions, and we can see if they're being arbitrary. Um, that seems, I, I don't, I have a hard time figuring out what Roberts and Alito, and if you, if you make the kind of conservative judicial force, say, uh, Roberts and Alito and Pryor or Sykes, um, if you guys can answer this, what, what is the, what are the kind of judicial interpretive principles that they bring that we can hold them accountable to? I know what they are fairly well for Thomas and, and you know, for Scalia. Um, but I'm not sure what they are for the kind of new conservative. I think they're unaccountable. Uh, you have, uh, of course, Pryor, who's publicly said that he considers Roe v. Wade to be an abomination, and uh, he said that it should be overruled. Uh, the others have not spoken on it. Uh, so uh, I suppose Senator Schumer will say, Judge, uh, do you think uh, Roe v. Wade is an abomination? Why is it an abomination? I'll say, because I'm devout Catholic, and uh, I think... Uh, uh, abortion uh, is murder and uh, it uh, should be outlawed. Uh, it's going to come up. I mean, that issue is going to come up because there's pending in Congress uh, a bill that says uh, that abortion will be uh, illegal after 20 weeks uh, and the Supreme Court will have to pass on that. That'll probably, if that uh, uh, bill is enacted in the law, uh, it will come up more quickly than 
the issue of whether you need a doctor needs a Nobel Prize to perform an abortion, which will come up slowly in uh, various states. Uh, we have time, I think, for about two more questions. Okay. Maybe, yeah, one after mine. Um, so you mentioned, Mr. Zirin, um, the idea that there's never been a presidential candidate who said uh, that he would uh, use a litmus test, basically, in um, nominating a Supreme Court justice, in this case, uh, Roe versus Wade. Um, and, you know, I, I know in Philadelphia, when Hillary Clinton was talking about judicial nominations, she said she would only appoint justices who would overturn Citizens United. Um, and that was met with thunderous applause. Uh, so my question is, it, is your argument predicated on the, on the fact that a lot of these precedents have been upheld after coming up again? So is it just old precedents that matter and that kind of make this court a more political thing? Or do new precedents have just as much weight as the older ones? Well, I think, well, uh, I think stare decisis is very, very important because it is a judicial process and that's a traditional judicial tool. Not that judges can't make the law. I mean, Holmes believed that judges make the law, but they make it in a different way from the way legislators do. But uh, I believe that the law must be allowed to develop, and it develops, I think, through stare decisis by following cases uh, that clearly in point or by distinguishing cases uh, that are close but not really uh, so very much in point where there is uh, real substance to the distinction, not just saying case standing, borrowing some language from the case, but where you, the judge really analyzes what the case stands for. So uh, are there uh, super-duper precedents? Uh, I think that came up in uh, one of the confirmation hearings with, uh, uh, I think Arlen Specter coined the term, uh, Senator from Pennsylvania, that uh, Roe v. Wade has become a super-duper precedent because even though controversial at the time, maybe even though controversial now, it's been reaffirmed several times. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, if uh, uh, there is, of course, a time uh, uh, which has to do with the development of society and the recognition that certain cases uh, were... Uh, uh, erroneously decided, such as uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, there comes a time where you have to overrule precedent or ignore it. And um, that's what they did in Brown v. Board of, uh, of Education. And uh, I think everyone on the court today would say that that was correctly decided. I mean, they might take some exception to uh, the reasoning or how it was done. But uh, that was, uh, what, 58 years? Uh, uh, from the time of Plessy to uh, uh, Brown v. Board, uh, it took them 58 years to overrule the case. Uh, Lawrence v. Texas, the, um, uh, the prior case was Bowers v. Hardwick. It was, uh, I think, about 17 years. Um, and uh, so it was a five to four decision in Bowers v. Hardwick, and then I don't remember in Lawrence v. Texas, probably six to three or so. But um, that was a case where. Uh, uh, in particularly uh, could see uh, uh, an equal protection, a strong equal protection argument because the same acts committed by heterosexual couples in Texas were lawful, but 
by homosexual couples not lawful. So um, I think perhaps they saw that as a denial of equal protection. I don't know if you had these parallels in mind, but two, so Citizens United has already been challenged and, uh, and affirmed once already at the Supreme Court. There was another case a few years later where Mon- the Montana Supreme Court tried to basically nullify Citizens United and went back to the court and they said, no, no, we meant it. And even some of the justices who, who had dissented said, you know, obviously we're not overruling this case right now. So there is, there is that. And in, uh, in Casey, when the court refuses to overturn Roe, one of the reasons it gives is it says, like, given that there's this popular outcry against the decision, that makes it all the more important. Like, sorry, it says this has unusual force when there's popular outcry against the decision, because we need to show people that we don't bow to political pressure, that we kind of stand up in the face of controversy. So I expect that language to be cited uh, prominently if, if uh, Hillary Clinton had won and tried to overturn it. More questions. Okay. So it seems to me that almost every sphere of justice, potential justice, getting onto the court about their life is dissected thoroughly. You know, race, gender, political views, etc. The only one that seems to escape, and listening to your comments, um, still seems to matter much, is uh, their religion. And so I'm wondering if you see the politicization of the religion of a potential justice mattering into the future of the court. Should it matter? Should we be done looking at that with the same scrutiny that we've done some of the other identity policies of the judges? Well, uh, that came up in the Roberts confirmation hearing, actually, where they uh, asked whether his uh, Roman Catholicism would uh, uh, influence his decisions. And uh, that issue has been uh, discussed in many uh, law review articles. It's been discussed by your Professor Stone. It's been discussed by judges, Catholic judges. Uh, they've done uh, analysis. And yet, remember, uh, one of the uh, justices uh, voting with the majority in Roe v. Wade was William Brennan, a devout Catholic. Uh, and even uh, in uh, uh, the uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and it's uh, probably the most recent abortion case, you had Justice Kennedy, a devout Catholic, who agreed that uh, the kinds of limitations that uh, Texas was imposing uh, placed a substantial burden on a woman's constitutional right, they said, uh, to an abortion uh, when the fetus was uh, non-viable. So uh, it seems pretty much ingrained in our jurisprudence that uh, this is a constitutional right. And uh, it's hard to see someone getting on the court saying, well, you know, I can't endorse that. Uh, I have to ignore that because I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, I think if, if that were his position, he ought to do what uh, Scalia said should be done, which is resign. I don't think that would come up that way. Okay. Um, but yes, we do scrutinize. I, I think the, the, kind of the, the, the Senate scrutinizes the religion of the uh, candidates, and they're aware of the religion of the candidates and the religious belief, and uh, at times they, uh, I mean, it stands on its head, there should be no religious test for office, but they... Uh, ask him anyway about it, and they did in the case of Roberts, I thought he answered it quite well. Okay, uh, so that's the end, please help me in thanking you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.